Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. And he doesn't need a comeback because he's already here. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? <laughs> I was thinking of introing. Tyson story. I know. I was thinking of introing this with telling you I was coming out of retirement to restart my athletic career. As you know, I to some people around the way, I did invent the point forward in basketball. Uh, so you know, forward in basketball. Uh, so you know. Maybe there's a team looking for a 39-year-old, six-foot-three rookie point <laughs> forward with a bad neck. Oh, you think um, there's late. some job ops out there for me? <laughs> the Nets may be open to it. The Nets may be open to it. Beasley got dude? COVID. I could be on the roster, man. <laughs> I love it. But what's new with you, dude? You know, I just learned a fun fact. Do you want to learn about it with me? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Do you know that the London Bridge is over Lake Havasu in Arizona. Yeah. The man who was tasked with designing Disney. So he oh, was the one right. who laid out the whole format of the Disney park. And his second endeavor was doing Lake Havasu and somehow brokered with the English government to get the London Bridge shipped to Arizona. Zona and put over the lake <laughs> never knew another one of his fail of that guy's failed projects he had a thing called freedom land in the bronx which was really? supposed to you know blow up as like the disneyland of the east coast right Ooh. around the time of the world's fair and this guy always felt kind of slighted because uh he thought the world's fair was going to be his big thing but then the world's fair brought in walt disney to design all the attractions for the thing out in queens so very wow. yeah the, the the theme park business in the early part of the 20th century fascinating read greasy who knew so <laughs> greasy we, uh, we thought it was all mickey mouse <laughs> well speaking of greasy it's time for this day in music history it's a day late but i don't care <laughs> In 1987, one of my favorite albums of all time, Appetite for Destruction, comes out by Guns N' Roses. All-time classic. In the end, 30 million copies of this album sold. But not so fast. Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction debuted at number 182 on Billboard, and it didn't get to the top of the charts until a year later when David Geffen, uh, you know, famous uh, owner of Geffen Records, called mtv and requested that they play welcome to the jungle huh. they approved it playing it once at four o'clock in the morning and it got so many uh requests that it wound up in regular rotation and the album subsequently took off now it sold 18 million in the u.s 30 million worldwide which is still to this day the highest selling debut album by any group or artist wow. And still, this record holds. It beat, it beat Hootie and the Blowfish, Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, Boston for the highest-selling debut album in history. All-time classic, changed the face of music. Some people like to contest that Guns N' Roses' appetite uh, was killed by the grunge movement when it came. But I like to contest that this album actually moved it to the grunge movement since... They sort of more. I love how people say they didn't do their hair. You just have to look at <laughs> Axl Rose in the Sweet Child of Mine video to see he was still teasing. But uh, musically, and more importantly, sort of the 
the feeling behind Guns N' Roses was more serious. It was more dangerous than the things that were coming out at the time, especially Girls, Girls, Girls and stuff by Motley Crue. So I think that this record actually paved the way for people to get into grunge less than grunge killing bands like Guns N' Roses. Hmm. Now, there's two little funny stories about this record I want to tell. First off, David Bowie dated Slash's mom. Hmm. Never knew that. Is that Delonte West of music? Yeah, he wound (laughs) up at the video shoot of It's So Easy, and uh, David Bowie hit on Erin Everly, who was Axl Rose's first wife, and apparently Axl Rose took some swings at David Bowie at the It's So Easy video shoot. So those two almost fought, which is a fun story. And then anybody who listens to that record knows when you're listening to the song Rocket Queen, you think, you're like, what am I hearing back there? Is that sex? Is that intercourse going on on the album? And it 100% is sex. Now, the story behind that was uh, the Rocket Queen herself is Adriana Smith, who was dating Steven Adler, the drummer. She caught Steven Adler cheating and developed a physical relationship with Axl Rose to get back at him. <laughs> they, they subsequently cleared the studio, turned down the lights, put cushions down, and recorded two hours, good for Axl Rose, oh, yeah. of them having sex and put it onto the record. Wow. So that is not false. <laughs> it is true. And the Rocket Queen was actually in studio <laughs> doing this. And she proudly tells the story, so I assume she was up for it. But... uh Appetite for Destruction, all-time classic, still in my top 10 most seminal albums that, that, that have been in my music history. I'm surprised that Bob Seger never did that because, you know, sports writers always love to share the, ant- the antics of him at the Pontiac Dome at, at Lions games. Apparently, he was getting more busy than some of those Lions teams, but yeah. Seeger, king, king of Detroit, right? <laughs> at least Pontiac. Anyway, Benny, my... This I'm a little day- embarrassed. I just said... Bob Seger is the king of Detroit. <laughs> Let's backtrack that one. This is about 10 or 15 I could put a button yeah. ahead of Bob Seger. Oh, yeah. Okay, on this day in 1976, Elton John scored his first UK number one single with Don't Go Breaking My Heart. John met his duet companion, Kiki D, while she was working as a backing singer. So, so she went from the background to the forefront. John would later re-record the song with RuPaul for his 1993 duets album. How about that? Very cool. Very cool. Didn't know that at all. All right, we got a bunch of different topics to get to today. Oh, by the way, coming up on the show, Rolling Stone chief TV critic Alan Sepinwall. What a what a conversation that was. I'm excited for you guys. He drops nuggets on us. (laughs) Straight up. But we got a few topics to get into on the business end of things here. Uh, Benny, there have been some name changes today in professional sports. Uh, Seattle got a professional hockey team, and they officially announced the name today, the Seattle Kraken. We'll weigh through all of these muddy waters in just a sec. And the Washington Redskins, in their heated name debacle, (laughs) just decided to go for the time being, the Washington football team, which I guess that's what people are already writing and talking about. But I got a bone to pick with the Kraken. Ah, which sounds like I'm going after Russia, but I'm not. (laughs) Seattle missed a big opportunity here not to call it the Seattle grunge. That's probably been copyrighted and trademarked by people. But I feel like there was a real chance to kind of immortalize it, have a hockey team. You know, you could play all of those classic songs in the arena. I think it would have been pretty cool. Hockey team Seattle grunge. 
That's a good idea, and I'm sure it got floated. Um, I gotta say, I support the Kraken. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I saw the name, I saw the logo, I saw the art, everything that's going with it. Seems like a really uh, polished and you know well-rounded presentation in what they're doing. They seem to cover most of the bases. The logo's great. The space needles involved. Who doesn't love a fictitious sea creature, a giant squid? written about by Lord Tennyson back in 1930, you know, or 1830, I believe, you know, this thing is like, has this cool history and aura and, and nothing represents it more in America than a a seaside town like Seattle. But it's also got used because, you know, it was recently popularized in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. And of course, Jerry Bruckheimer, the Hmm. producer of those films, is part owner of NHL Seattle. So I think that uh, they're trying to capitalize on the Kraken in general, maybe some uh, posthumous (laughs) Christmas merch for Pirates of the Caribbean, perhaps a Kraken (laughs) spinoff. I think there's more at work here than meets the eye, but I think it's fucking cool, actually. By the way, Ben, you may need to get the Gaslight Anthem lawyers on the phone for their secondary logo. They went for the almost the exact same anchor as you guys had on some of the shirts you sold over the years. So I uh, think that there's a real opportunity there. Kind of be like, hey, I feel like we have uh, imminent domain over, over the anchor in the entertainment and sports space. I, I feel like there's some money to be made for the boys. If we do that, I think like the 25 bands who used anchors <laughs> prior to us might take a lawsuit on. <laughs> I, might, I might stay mum on that one. <laughs> and then on the other side of this conversation, the Washington football team, which honestly, if they go with Washington mm-hmm. FC, a la some of our British friends and the, the soccer clubs, which is what a lot of the MLS teams are doing. They're just like Charlotte FC. They're pretty funny. Yeah, like, yeah. So we just have wa- the Washington Football Club, or no, you don't, you don't be the most Dan Snyder thing ever. The Washington American Football Association, the, the WAFA. <laughs> I can see it, man. I mean, you know, everybody knows what this is about. It's been well covered. FedEx grabbed Dan Snyder by the balls, <laughs> and Dan Snyder finally had to make, you know, not even as far back as 2013, Dan Snyder was quoted as, I will never change this name. You can put it in capital letters, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, then uh, Daddy came and slapped the bait and tackle, and all of a sudden Dan Snyder's not talking so loud when FedEx is threatening to pull the naming rights at $45 million hit. The, you know, CEO, Fred Smith of FedEx, is trying to sell his shares, which are 40% of the team. So... You know, this is obvious why it happened. I I mean, if they actually release this as the new name, I kind of like it in a way. It's Mm. sort of classy. It's kind of old school. It's got the colors. But the thing I really don't like about this is that they're going to present it as a temporary name. They're going to sell merchandise for a year, and then they're going to roll out something else next year um, when they obviously really could have taken care of this in the time that they had. It's been thought about for so long that I think what they're doing is either it's one of two things. It's an actual, you know, real lack of their own due diligence in going through this process, or it's a little bit of a fuck you. Yeah. It could be a little bit of a, you know what? You want us to change our name? Not this year. You're going to get this bland generic thing. Here it is. It's a football team. It's a little bit of like a fuck you too, maybe. And if you want to know the, the real cultural feeling of what happened with this. All you have to 
see is LeBron James's tweet about it, right? He says, just waking up from my pregame nap to see about the Washington football team, followed by six laughing faces. Is that real? No way. Oh, man, they had a thorough, intense, long board meeting about that one, huh? So I'm pretty sure what LeBron's sentiment is is going to be the the widespread cultural sentiment on this this name change for a year. Well, that's kind of the pot calling the kettle black. No, the guy who thought he invented Taco Tuesday coming out at for names. No, get out of here, LeBron. Get out of here. <laughs> All right, Benny, next headline today. Mike Tyson is coming back for a May 12th fight against Roy Jones Jr. Yes, Tyson, please. 54, hasn't fought since losing to Kevin McBride in 2005. Benny, what do you make of this? Yes, please. <laughs> I'm so up for this. I think it's so much fun. I love the opponent he picked. I was a big Roy Jones Jr. fan as well. He was one of my favorite fighters when he was around. You know, if you look at the, the tail of the tape, you would think Roy Jones Jr. has an advantage, right? Because he's he's three years younger, uh, 16 more career wins. He last fought in 2018, so he's a little you know more brushed up. He's an inch taller. He's got uh, three inches more reach. So Roy Jones Jr., as far as it as it uh, you know goes side by side, seems to have the advantage. But I mean, if anybody's watching these Mike Tyson training videos. I mean, I'm no boxing expert, but the guy looks, I mean, he looks insane. And he was doing a, an interview going into this with Max Kellerman. And I think he can still murder people because mm. Kellerman asked him a question he clearly didn't like. And you saw that thing in his eye come back, you know, Tyson's still crazy. And if you get him in the ring like that, it's going to be something else. But just like the money Mayweather thing, you know, this is obviously just, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, it's it's surrounded by so many capitalistic things. It's obviously a bit of a money grab. I mean, I guess when boxing fights aren't, but it's all going to be on some new social media platform called Triller that Tyson seems to be pushing. Uh, it's going to be a big coordinated thing um, with a 10 part docuseries that they're making prior. And then it's also in conjunction with this thing that Mike Tyson is starting called the Legends Only League, where I think he's taken off some version of Ice Cube's uh, league and taking ex-players who still want to play and giving them a forum to do that. So Tyson, you know, I'm not going to say Tyson's the smartest guy in the world, but, you know, he's obviously uh, planning on capitalizing on this as much as possible. And he's been putting these teaser videos out and getting people excited, and I am one of them. I will shell out big money to watch this fight. It's just too interesting. You want to know when a sport is officially dead, when the only thing that people get excited about is gimmicks like this. When was the last time you got excited about like a a, a up-and-coming fighter? I get it, Canelo Alvarez was great, but that kind of feels like a once-in-a-blue-moon. I feel like these gimmicks in boxing, they need one every one or two years to kind of keep people interested. I'm not interested in boxing. I feel like the entire momentum of all of the fighting has gone to MMA. It's marketed better. It, it has the attention because you like if you're into watching Bloodsport and stuff like that, it kind of gives you what you want there. So yeah, cool. Will it be nice to see Mike Tyson back in the ring and not on Broadway waxing poetic for two hours? Absolutely. <laughs> but come on, boxing. Give us some up-and-coming talent, promote them like you promoted the legends, and give your sport an actual chance to survive. I, I do agree with that to a point, for sure. But the one thing I would contest is that you're right. The biggest selling things at the moment are these kind of kitschy things. And the entire undercard of this Tyson Jones fight 
is going to be boxers versus MMA. It's going to be yeah, a bunch of Mayweather stupid. McGregor diet fights going yeah. on beforehand. So, you know, more than this being, uh, you know, them being kitschy, maybe this is kind of the future and maybe, you know, the mixed fighting of boxers to MMA and stuff like that is kind of combining. And that's where the, the whole thing is going to land at this point. So uh, this could be a move in the direction it's actually going. All right. Coming up, he is the chief TV critic for Rolling Stone magazine. Alan Seppenwall, Jersey's own, joins us next. So I just read you're from Pinebrook, New Jersey. I am. I grew up with Pete Yorn. That's awesome. Do you, can you help? I'm pretty sure the first demo I ever recorded was in Pinebrook, New Jersey. Really? Do you remember, was there a studio at some point called Pinebrook Studios? Does this ring a bell It does not ring a bell with me, but I wasn't musically inclined enough to do it. I will actually, I'll ask Pete if he remembers something like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know, okay? Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, I had no frame of reference yet, so my memories, the guy who ran the place was a real working class kind of guy. Uh, gave me a lot of shit while I was there. But I remember being really close to an Italian deli because I yes. was pretty excited. Yeah, there, were, that I, there were at least three of those in Pinebrook yeah, at the time. Yeah, a good one. with like one of the quality ones with like a mozzarella and carosa, you know, <laughs> yep. like something like that. That's the one. So now I, I can understand how you fell in love with the Sopranos so fast. <laughs> it's like you're from like Sopranos turf. Yeah, I'm like one town over from Caldwell. Yeah, yeah you're right in the thick of it there. Yep. Was that part of like your attraction to the show in general? The fact that just I'm sure your neighbors and your friends' parents and stuff were kind of there like was that? some of that. I think it was more like more cynically. It was just I wrote for the Star Ledger, which was <laughs> right. you know the the big paper, and so this was a big deal for us. But it definitely helped me like connect with David Chase because he'd grown right. up in Caldwell, and so even though we're about you know 30 years apart in age. We had a lot of common references. You know, we would start talking about the flea market on Route 46, that right, kind of thing. Right. And so he liked me because sure, of that. the local connection. Yeah. Well, respect, first off, the Star Ledger was my, my, my paper growing up, a periodical of note that was delivered to my house daily. <laughs> so I was reading about that, and I'm like, yo, Star Ledger, respect. Well, I remember our, our rock critic, Jay Lustig, yeah. like he knew that I loved Springsteen. So one day he's like, Alan, there's this band. I think you're really going to like them, you know? And it was oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I've definitely read Lustig before. <laughs> before we get into, into your career, which I really want to do, got to talk about the movie release that everyone is keeping an, an eye on. What's up with Christopher Nolan's Tenant? Uh, I can't imagine that's coming out in America anytime in 2020. They keep pushing it back and, like, hoping it... it that somehow this will magically go away by then. But even if they were to release it in theaters in September, October, do you want to go to a movie theater right now to see Tenet and sit in shared air conditioning with people who are eating popcorn without masks on? Right. No. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> they can try it, but if they do that, it's going to flop. Right. You know, and so there's talk of maybe they'll open it internationally in the countries that have their act together more than us. But then Christopher Nolan is paranoid about spoilers, so God knows what's going to happen. It's right. Like so many things about life right now, it's a mess. Do you think, uh, you know, one of the fallouts of this is going to be like, you know, I, I know, you know, sit-in movie theaters have been having some problems anyway. You basically have to make full restaurant and bar service to make people go to them at this point. 
like, do, do you think this situation's really gonna kind of lend itself to a, a shrinking of that of that business and a and an even further growing of the streaming stuff? I think probably it's just you know obviously because I write primarily about TV, I don't have as much time to go to the movies. But sure. going to I love movies, but going to a theater is has had become pre-pandemic such a headache in terms of cost, in yes. terms of dealing with obnoxious people who were sitting on their phones the whole time or right. talking or whatever. Um, it just, it was really unpleasant. And so I wanted to go to see movies, but I didn't actually want to be in a theater. And so the fact that you can get stuff like, um, like Spike Lee's movie to five bloods or Palm Springs on Hulu right. or some of these others that have been released on streaming over the last month or two, it's been nice. I, I wouldn't mind that. I, I also like, I've paid for things that were, were released on demand because I didn't get to see them before the, the pandemic started. Right. Uh, and I can see a lot more of that. The question is whether the economics make that possible sure. because I don't, I don't know business well enough to know whether a lot of these big blockbuster movies can make money if they're not in theaters. Right. Right. I feel the same as you. I had two little kids in the last five years. So, you know, going to the movies has become you know, few and far between for me. Uh, and the last time I went, I'm sitting on a touch screen and I'm like, wait, you pick your seats now? <laughs> like, what's happening here? I'm like, mozzarella sticks? I could get a cold beer? I'm like, I don't even understand this movie experience. It's nothing like it was when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, it might become one of these things where, like, there are only upscale movie theaters, and those are the only reasons right. you would want to go, and, yeah. and anything else you just stay home for. Yeah, that's the draw now. So we had so, uh, Tim Baltz from Righteous Gemstones on the program a couple weeks ago, and he talked about the schedule change for the shooting of, of that show for their season two. Uh, how as a TV critic, with the schedule of filming being pushed back, how, how does that affect your writing season? Well, right now I've been doing okay. There's been so much of a backlog of stuff that was made before the quarantine happened that I have, I'm only starting right around now to have a lack of things to write about. And even lately, I'm still like, I have enough of a backlog <laughs> that I'm okay. When we get into September, when we get into October, November, like by the end of the year, then things are going to be really skimpy. There will be like one or two things, maybe a month, uh, that'll be of interest. And then at a certain point, we're just going to run out unless production can start again soon. Uh, and I don't know what will happen with that. And at that point, I will probably just have to spend a lot of time either revisiting shows I've written about a million times or finally catching up on all the shows I didn't have time for because there's just too much TV right now or was you know, before this. Yeah. 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 I, I read in your, in your book, uh, revolution was televised. I, I didn't read the whole thing yet, but I have perused. And, uh, you know, at some point, you know, the 12 shows you're talking about that sort of revolutionized TV again, it seemed like it was in an era where like the talent was going to TV as far as, you know, actors and directors and production and, uh, going to TV instead of movies. And now that, you know, TV seems to be getting the money, do you think the landscape is going to shift back to the, the talent going back into film instead of TV? I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on what we were talking about before. Like, if movie theaters mostly go away, then yeah. I think movie studios are going to have to bring back the kind of, like, mid-budget films for adults that they basically stop making in favor of superhero movies and other, you know, big-budget action temples. Right, because right. like those are things where the economics will make sense if you release it on streaming, like a Palm Springs. Sure. Uh, and if that like one of the reasons you had this big flood of talent to TV was because they couldn't tell the kind of stories that they liked right. in movies anymore. There just wasn't space for them. You know, 
David Chase wanted to make Sopranos as a movie, but the movie business had mostly gotten out of making that kind of thing. Right. So it, it could boomerang it. It could not. I don't know. Right now, there's just there's so everyone is launching their own streaming service. We just got Peacock last week. And <laughs> yeah. as a result, everyone's still going to be hunting for content. And people are mostly conditioned to want to watch TV shows on these. So I don't know how long it's going to take the pendulum to swing back the other way. Yeah, that makes sense. I have an outside question. So, Go for so it. I took the biggest Sopranos fan I know, who is the singer of my band Mercy Union and a solo artist named Jared Hart, a uh, very talented guy and hyper obsessed with the Sopranos. So I gave him a text. I'm like, I'm going to have this guy in the line tomorrow. What do you, what do you want to ask him? You know? Okay. So he thought, this is, he said, I've been noticing recently how many people think these actors are who they played in the show. Like yeah. Michael Imperioli has had people on Instagram commenting, yo, why do you support this Christopher would never, as if Chris is the real person and not Michael. Yeah. Uh, the question he had was, what is it about a certain piece like Sopranos that, that makes fans think that way and makes them their heart go in that direction i think there's a couple things one it's just a great show it's one of the greatest shows of all time that yeah. there's a reason i've written multiple books that have dealt with the sopranos in <laughs> yeah, one way or another sure. um but it's also that most of them were pretty unknown when the show came out right. uh, and that was that was a deliberate thing like people didn't know gandolfini they yeah. didn't really know edie falco uh, there was a few people like lorraine brocco who were kind of famous sure. and imperioli had had a small role in goodfellas but for the most part, if you're watching The Sopranos, this is the first time you ever see them. And so yeah. you start to think of them as he is Christopher, he is Tony, she is Carmela. Uh, and then, you know, and if that's your favorite show and you're watching it over and over again, uh, as a lot of people, at least are in this area do, that that bond becomes even deeper and deeper. Uh, and I remember one time I was at the premiere for one of the seasons and like they did a big screening at Radio City and then there was a party afterwards at 30 Rock. And I was waiting online at the bar to get a drink. And a woman asked me what I thought of the premiere. And I, I asked her what she thought. And there's a scene in the premiere where Christopher and Pauly like murder a waiter. I don't know if you remember this. Mm -hmm. He comes out to complain that they stiffed him on the tip. Yeah. And one of them throws a rock at his head and he right. dies. Uh, and so the, I asked the woman what she thought of the episode. She said, I was very frustrating because Christopher is such a nice boy and why is he shooting heroin? And I go, nice boy, they just killed the waiter. And she says, yeah, but he asked for it. He was talking back. Oh, you not only get people identifying with them as actors, but sort of taking their side in really yeah. disturbing ways. Apologizing for it. Well, isn't that the whole glory of like the Tony Soprano character though? Is like, you know, you'll watch three episodes and your heart is with Tony. Yeah, But then you're thinking and you're like, wait, why is my heart with this guy? He just murdered about seven people, cheated on his wife, did all these things I don't respect, but I'm still rooting for him. It's kind of the the, the whole thing with him, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's with that show, uh, with The Shield, with Mad Men, with Breaking Bad, right. with a lot of the shows that came afterwards um, that I've, I've written about a ton. And it's sort of it's this double edged sword because these actors like Gandolfini or Brian Cranston are so charismatic and yes. so good that you wind up seeing their point of view and sometimes taking it a little too far. And then you start looking at the characters on the show who are actually like decent human beings and they're the bad guys <laughs> yes. because you just want Tony or Walter White to get away with everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I was the opposite because all I could see James Gandolfini doing for the first couple of seasons was beating the shit out of Patricia Arquette. And oh, yeah, true romance. True romance. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I watched that scene in True Romance and I said, 
who the bleep is this guy? I want to yeah. see him in everything now. And it's true. And I did. Yeah. He popped, uh, popped off the screen in that, in that one scene for sure. Yeah. Um, to touch on breaking bad a little, it's, it's one of my all time favorite shows. I think it's great. I've obsessively watched it many times. There's one thing I can't reconcile that I hope you can help me with. Go for it. All right. So I don't care about spoiling the end. If you haven't seen breaking bad by now, that's, that's your fault. Um, so yes. I, I really love like one of my favorite TV shows literally ever made is the second to last episode of breaking bad, you know, where the scene starts out in his old colleague's house, you know, faking the shooting when he's really like on the run, this bearded yeah. despondent Walter white, you know, this different character. Yeah. And the one thing I can't reconcile is this. He loads up his car. He's, he's famously blown up drug lords. Uh, you know, like, like he yeah. has a reputation that's, that's, you know, so gangster. How do these guys not check his trunk? He's going into the white power compound. Yeah. He's got this reputation. These are career criminals, even though dumb career criminals. How do they not open his trunk to find the Gatling gun sitting in there? That's one of a number of issues I have with the finale of Breaking Bad, which is a show I absolutely love. Uh, but it's like if you go two episodes back from the finale, the one that end where like Hank is gets shot in the desert and Walt and Skyler have the fight in the kitchen. Yes. And eventually it ends with Walt getting in the va- in the vacuum cleaner store guy's van and driving away. Right. Like that to me is would have been a perfect ending for the show because yeah. it's so dark and it's just look here this guy you thought you were rooting for and he destroyed everything and he ruined everything that to me is sort of like what breaking bad should have ended yeah and there's some really great stuff in the next two episodes and the finale has that incredible scene where walt finally tells skylar i did it for me i liked it i was good at it and i felt alive and that to me is almost worth doing that episode anyway but the rest of it really feels kind of like wish fulfillment of all right well He's really bad, but we have to let him clean up as much as he possibly can before the end. So we've got to get rid of the Nazis. And part of that is also one of the ways that the show was written was they would come up with these big ideas and not really think through what they meant. They're like, okay, we'll do this and we'll figure it out later. Right. And the people making the show were really, really smart and they were able to get away with it almost every time. Yeah. But the one that they always talk about that they just wanted to bash their head against the wall was when they opened the previous season with Walt in the flash forward with the beard and he opens the trunk of the car and there's a machine gun in it. And they had no idea what the machine gun was for, why he needed it, who he was going to shoot with it. And then a year later, they come back to write the final season and they're like, well, we got to come up with something here. answer that, right. And so and you can kind of see the seams of the show a little bit there in terms of, you know, you're right. Uncle Jack would have absolutely had somebody <laughs> open the trunk and look inside. Yeah. Even if they were just missing him as like an old, useless, dying man, they know what he's done previously. But that's right. Nope. It's yeah. a good question. I mean, there is part of it. You know, I think by, you know, season two or three of Breaking Bad, there is like a level of, I have to accept part of this as fantasy to truly enjoy it. Yes. You know, like there, there are some shows that do that. It's not altogether realistic, which would make yeah. it way less fun. And the other thing that the show used to d- did a lot more in the early seasons than it did right there at the end is it would kind of take you step by step through things. So it's mm. like, here's how you cook the meth. Here's how you dispose of a body. Here's how you learn to set up a distribution ring. Right, right. And the last couple of episodes, so many things are happening that there isn't as much time for that. So literally like 
Walter White, like the most infamous fugitive in all of America, right. drives cross country from New Hampshire to Albuquerque, yes. and nobody notices him. Not one. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, I can't. I can't get a van through the Southwest without getting pulled over, man. <laughs> Jesus, border security down there—they're crazy. Yeah. Alan, over the course of your career, you've been a famous defender of shows, telling people not to hate the OC. You almost single-handedly saved Chuck, even though the fans sending in nerds to NBC probably did a great deal of that. So during this quarantine, I've been re-binging the OC. You literally wrote the book on it. Is the job of a good teen drama to capture the era that it's shot in? I think that's certainly a part of it, unless you're doing a period show. Right. But like... Teen dramas are very current. Uh, they're very much of the moment. And I think that's a really good one, especially that first season. Yeah. I haven't gone back to revisit it, uh, but that's sort of on my to-do list at some point, maybe when, <laughs> when one of my kids is old enough for it. Once um, Olivia Wilde's but, out, you can be done with the show. <laughs> I like I like that last season. I felt like they kind of fixed enough things and it was funny in a way yeah. that the show hadn't been in a while. And I really liked it <laughs> because the OC was a, like a good comedy in addition yeah. to being a good soap opera. But yeah, it's that's one where like they burned up about three seasons worth of plots in the first year and had nowhere else to go after right. that. <laughs> but one of the interesting things about that show is, you know, they had bands like The Killers on and music was such a big yeah. part of kind of storytelling of that show. But we've never really had a good music show. And since this is primarily a music podcast, I'm just kind of wondering why you think that happens. I mean, I guess you could count Atlanta, but I feel like Atlanta is kind of its own genre. Yeah, Atlanta's really good, and it's sort of only vaguely about Paperboy's career. Right. Dave, the the Little Dicky show on FX mm. this year was really really yeah, good. Like, yeah, and that cool. and that dealt a little bit more with sort of his creative process. So I like that. It's hard because you sort of, among other things, you have to come up with like a fake band or a fake singer who is convincingly good at yes. that. Uh, and like, you know, Benny, you know this, like, are you going to give up your best material right. for like an actor, like playing a musician there? Uh, Apple has this new show called little voice now. And Sarah Bareilles wrote all the songs mm. and the songs are really good, but they sound exactly like Sarah Bareilles songs. So you're watching the show and you're thinking, wait a minute, how does no one at any point say you're real? Like there's a lot of scenes where people can't quite figure out how to market her. And no right. one ever says, well, we just sell her in like, you know, coffee shops and on, <laughs> on the, you know, serious channel 16. I think the only way to make it work is you got to go back to the monkeys model. You know, you yeah. literally have to create a fake band of actual talented musicians that nobody knows yeah. and do it from the ground up. But again, like you said, what legitimate musician who's trying to make a life in that world is trying to give his best material. But you know what, man, for... For X amount of dollars, yep. you could get the best song out of anyone. <laughs> this so, is, this it, is true. And I mean, I, One Direction was kind of that because they right. started out on, yeah. on the X Factor. It's like these five guys who Simon Cowell all put together, but they just didn't make a TV show out of them. They went off and toured and conquered the world. Hey, but it's it's it a hard worked, thing to do. It worked in Empire. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Empire was very good for a while. Yeah, and I remember was. like, I remember I'm not like a huge hip hop guy, but I watched that show and thought, all right, this is convinced thing. Like, I believe that these could actually be hits on the radio and some of them were. Yeah, the first couple of seasons of that was great. I had to throw in the towel when when he was when he gave uh 
<laughs> Taja Henderson the the mini pillow as a gift for trying to suffocate him. That's when it <laughs> went too much to like Days of Our Lives territory that I just couldn't I couldn't jam with it anymore. I just remember um, like that show started off and one of the ideas was that that Lucius is dying, and then you right. come back to the start of the next season. It's like, oh no no, we completely no. misdiagnosed <laughs> you. It's like you've got a migraine. You're yeah, okay. It's all done. We can't get rid of Terrence Howard quite yet. <laughs> no. Yeah. So you're a, you're a big uh, Knicks fan. I'm not gonna drag you uh, through the mud and make you it's talk okay. about Every I, I, If you want to, I'm enough of a masochist, I'll do it. All right, so, so two, two basic questions. One, who would you like to see as head coach? And then, in the history of the Knicks, who do you see or could have had a TV drama built around them for a former Knicks player? Okay, um, the, the second question first, like the Anthony Mason TV show, I think, would just be incredible. Like this guy... He, comes out of nowhere he's like the skinny kid he, he gets the guard skills he goes over he plays in turkey like i would want to see a tv show about anthony mason learning like and bulking up while playing in turkey overseas especially in the 90s yeah yes and you know when european basketball wasn't anywhere near right. the machine that it is now sure that would be great uh in terms of coach i i'm rooting for kenny atkinson even though i know he's probably not going to get the job because <laughs> I think he's just has a better track record of development yes. and, you know, turning something, nothing into something, which is really what the Knicks need because they've got a lot of young guys with a lot of warts in their game and they, you know, really have struggled for a long time. And I feel like you could play more of a slow game and do more of a genuine rebuild, which they have never really done right. despite being terrible for most of the decade. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be Thibodeau and I think he's good at some things. I worry that like his whole defensive scheme is about 10 years out of date, but you know, he's a smart guy. We'll find out. Yeah. Who's your, uh, who's your favorite kid on the next right now? Like who do you have the most, the most hope in uh, Mitchell Robinson, I think is, is the, the one who's most likely to be an actual star. Yeah. The one who I irrationally love, even though he's objectively been pretty bad is Frank Nielakina. Uh Just because I love the idea of him being this defensive eraser, which he, he can be, but yeah. he just on offense, he gives you so little that it's really hard to justify him getting a lot of run. And a classic NBA nickname. Frankie smokes. is good. Oh, it's good. And that's, that's a good looking kid. And it's just fun watching him on the court, shutting somebody down for like two minutes at a time. Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice to see him flourish. I feel like if we asked you that question next year, you'd be the LaMelo ball show. Cause you already kind of saw that on Facebook watch having oh, the older God. guy. Honestly, I think you just kind of described empire right there to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, LeVar ball teaming up with the James Dolan organization <laughs> would be something, something. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best word I have for it is something. something. Someone's getting tossed out of that stadium. Yeah. All right, so this is something that, that's been a bit of a campaign for me for years, and maybe you can shed some light on. There, there are two films in particular that I... They're comedies. I'm a big comedy fan. Yep. And I think that two films in particular, Ghostbusters being one of them and Anchorman being the other, should have been awarded an Academy Award or at least nominated for Best Pictures because of the fact that they're original stories ensemble casts, perfect execution. They're really funny. Everything about, even Anchorman's a period piece, you know? Yeah. Um, now, like, what is it about comedy? And, and why is it always, like, shunned by the, uh, by the proletariat of films? I think there's a belief, and it's really unfair, that uh, drama is somehow both harder and more worthy. 
Like if yeah. something is serious, you know, that's, that's just inherently better. When, when Matt Seitz and I did TV, the book where we ranked the hundred best shows of all time. And we wound up picking the Simpsons as the best show ahead of the Sopranos. I remember every time we would tell people we did that, they're like, but how can you like put a comedy ahead of the Sopranos? Like, how can you do that? Just the very idea of it seemed ridiculous to them. And I think if you go back over the history of the Oscars, it's like, it's very rare to see both comic movies and even comic performances do well. Like every now and then you'll get something like uh, Kevin Klein and a fish called Wanda or Marissa yeah. Tomei and my cousin Vinny, right, right, where they're, right. they're just, they're so funny so yeah. that they get the Oscar anyway, but it's usually like, who cries most convincingly, um, you know, who does the best accent or who wears like the most facial prosthetics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's how you get it. I feel like with that whole thing, it's harder to write jokes for like 90 minutes than it is to, to like really dive into the emotional soul of people. Yeah, there, there's a famous quote. There was an English actor named Edmund Keen and uh, legend has it on his deathbed. Someone asked how he was feeling and he said, dying is easy comedy is hard <laughs> i believe it i mean listen i could go sit on my couch and think about a bunch of shit that'll make me cry for 90 i could do that on my own yeah i can't i can't think of something that'll make me laugh for 90 minutes no it's very difficult and i think there have been a bunch of movies over the last 20 years that absolutely should have been nominated like 40 year old virgin should have gotten a whole ton of oscar nominations and sure. it did not and that that's you know, that's on any that. others that pop out in your head that you think deserved more respect than they got. Ah, oh, God, I'm trying. I'm trying to think there's just my head is so full of, of TV shows and movies <laughs> that yeah. I I start to lose track of things unless I have it written down somewhere. I do a Google <laughs> search. I have to, like, rely on friends to be my institutional memory because both because I'm older and because I've just watched too many things yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. How many hours a day are you are you watching? It varies because some days I'm not watching it at all. You know, yesterday I spent all day like struggling to write write a story, mm. and today I think I'm going to spend the entire day when I get off with you guys just watching screeners. So that'll be at least six <laughs> hours, and probably do some more after the kids go to bed. So like maybe eight to ten. Do you ever? Is it absolutely disrespectful in your business to hit fast forward at all? Um, I don't hit fast forward. There, there's a couple things I'll do. One is like. I will not, I do not always give a show my full attention. You know, there's a certain point, especially with a lot of these streaming shows where it's just like they have six episodes of story and 13 episodes that they're trying to fill it with. Right. Uh, and at a certain point, I'm like, okay, well, I'll play, I'll play solitaire on my phone while I'm watching <laughs> yeah. just so I can like keep track of the story. And if something interesting happens, then you get my full Pop attention again. Uh, so that'll sometimes happen. And then there's shows where I just decide, all right, I'm going to stop. And, and at that point, I either don't write about the show or I write about the show while saying they gave me six episodes, I watched two or something like that. Right. You know, you have to be fully transparent because the fact that like you didn't, it wasn't interesting enough to keep going is kind of a re review in and of itself. But mostly uh, if I stop something, I just uh, decide I'm not going to write about it. That's nice. I think that's nice of you. As someone <laughs> yeah, I got I got to be respectful yeah. of of people's time, but I they also have to be respectful of mine. And there's a lot of shows <laughs> that are just too long for for what they're trying to do. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the worst thing to get as a creator is like a half assed review. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? If you don't like it, stay away from it. Or at least tell me exactly why you didn't like it. Yes. But somebody just writing, ah, this is piss. 
and not giving you like any reason why that's the most frustrating thing as a creator. So I think that's a good, good uh, avenue to take. Yeah, no. And I, you know, I've always tried to be like, I'm writing for the audience and not necessarily for the creators, but I'm certainly always trying to be respectful of the fact that like a lot of people put a lot of time into making these things. And, you know, I'm not like a 22 year old who gets off on like being as mean as possible in my <laughs> reviews anymore. So it, t- it takes a lot to make me angry as a critic these days and, and very few things do it. Thankfully not trying to be the pitchfork of TV. <laughs> no, no, that's way in my rear view mirror. Thankfully. That's good. So one of your favorites, Midnight Run, turned 32 years old this week. Uh, it seems like we yes. see less buddy cop movies these days. What territory is still left to explore with that genre and movies, or is it more of a TV property now? I think it's just more of like an execution thing. Yeah. Like, you know, you can see something like Hobbs and Shaw kind yeah. of trying to be Midnight Run. You've yeah. got this, the two guys traveling around and bickering. And obviously they're both like much more impressive ass kickers than, <laughs> than Robert De Niro was in Midnight Run. But like that's that's the template still. It's just a matter of whether you do it well. When they made Midnight Run in 1988, we had had like, you know, 10 whole years of movies like it, like 48 hours and, and trading places. Weapon. Yeah, yeah, Lethal Weapon, exactly. And it's just a matter of how well you do it. And in the case of Midnight Run, it's there's incredible chemistry between De Niro and Charles Grodin, and there's really funny dialogue, and there's a million great supporting actors yeah. running around. And Dennis Farina is like, you know, saying, have a cream soda, do some fucking thing. <laughs> and it's just, it's so much fun, and it's executed on a high level. Those are often my favorite things. Like, I love things that, that do something I haven't seen before, but if you do something I've seen a million times and you make it really, really good, man, that hits the spot. <laughs> yeah, that's like a warm blanket, isn't it? When it, exactly. when it hits the right spot, yeah. You love Dennis Farina, huh? So so uh, now I had read that, that NYPD Blue really, really got you started, um, yeah. or at least your obsession with NYPD Blue and writing about it in college. Now, yeah. My father is a huge fan as well, and he used to make the point that it was an extremely revolutionary show. The only thing he'd seen before it was Hill Street Blues. Um, yeah. What What about that show to you, like, really changed the TV landscape? Like, what was it? So there was a few things. The NYPD Blue debuted in 1993, and that was the time Cable was starting to make original shows. They were still a, a while away from something like The Sopranos, but... Like uh, the the people who made NYPD Blue, Stephen Bochco and David Milf said, all right, well, we like cable is coming. We have to get out ahead of it. We have to be able to make a show like a cable thing could be made. So the language was much more adult. You know, they used curse words that had never been seen on TV before. There was at least partial nudity. You saw lots of people's asses. You saw, (laughs) you know, sides of breasts, things like that, which were never allowed. Out on broadcast TV before. Yeah, no, it was scandalous. Oh. Yeah, Dennis, you saw Dennis Franz get in the shower and you saw his ass, and that was, you know, <laughs> right. a, a cause celebre there for a few yeah, weeks. Yeah. But, but to me, that was always like the secondary thing. That was the thing that got all the attention. The thing that was special about that show and that helped pave the way for Sopranos and the Shield and everything else was more the fact that, like, it was very morally ambigu- ambiguous. The main character, Andy Sipowitz, at least when we meet him, he's an alcoholic, he's racist, sexist, he's all of these bad things. He beats confessions out of suspects. Yeah. So he's very complicated. He's very much an anti-hero. Uh, and, in a, and yet, and he did all these things that for decades, television executives had said, audiences will not accept this. They, they want to like the characters. They have to be fundamentally good people. Otherwise, you can't make a show. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and suddenly here was Sipowitz and he was beloved. Yeah. Like he's, you yeah. know, one of the most iconic characters of the 90s. And people looked at that and said, oh, wait a minute. Like we can actually push the outer edge of the envelope and like ha have some behavior that never would have been acceptable before. And thus you get a Tony Soprano or a Walter White or a Don Draper. And I think sometimes you can push it too far and it then becomes like people rooting for the, the confession to be beaten out of the suspect. Right, right. And I imagine a lot of that show's politics would not play well if I was to go back and watch it mm -hmm. now. But for sure. the time, it was utterly revolutionary and like a, a huge transitional step towards you know the revolution shows. Last one from me here. What have you heard or what do you expect about this Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark? I know it's primarily going to be set in 1967 around the time of the Newark riots, but I suspect it's also going to bounce around in time because they cast Jim Gandolfini's son, Michael, hmm. to play young Tony. And Tony in 1967 is a little kid. We've seen him yeah. in flashbacks like that. And Michael Gandolfini is, I think, 20 or 21. Okay. So I imagine we're going to see like young young Tony making his bones at some point. I don't, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but what I'll say is, you know, knowing David Chase, the creator of the show a lot uh, and knowing how much he cares about the legacy of that series and how little he needs money and how little he cares about attention at this point. I don't think he would be doing this if he didn't like think it was a really good idea. Right. Like it, it, it may not work, but it's not, he's not doing it to cash in he's not doing it to say, Hey, remember me. It's he has a really good story that he wants to tell and, and hopefully he's going to tell it well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Benny. <laughs> oh, he is Alan Seppenwall. Follow him at Seppenwall on Twitter. How'd you manage to get the Seppenwall Twitter? That that's a big deal. That's a big deal. When you flash the, well, there's only, <laughs> there's literally 12 people in the world with that name. I'm related <laughs> to all of them. And I guess I was the first one to join Twitter. So all, all my cousins and nephews and such, you know, sorry. Love it. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. My pleasure guys. Take care. Thanks Alan. Take it easy, man. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the TuneUp Podcast. Two P's in there. You can follow us. Check out all of our content at the TuneUp HQ on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow the big man himself, Benny Horowitz, at Benny Horowitz1. Number one in your mind. Number one in your heart. Number one on Twitter. I'm at Danny underscore Gallagher. Benny, got anything else? That's it, Danny. Everybody love everybody. Keep your hair nice and slick. <laughs> Happy opening day. I am Quinn Snyder, and you have been listening to the TuneUp.